Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Yeah. The charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? Uh-oh. Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show if you want to be on the show, and of course, I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to your homepage, which I'm sure is askbillnye.com, askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. And today I am joined once again by science writer, editor, and Seriously People's dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. Now, Bill, you know me pretty well by now. You know that I'm a kind of a standoffish kind of guy. Oh, yes, yes. Play the cards close to the vest. Don't show emotion unless absolutely pressed. But sometimes I have to gush. Look, I am the astronauts. I have Say dreamed it. Say it, about Corey. visiting the bottom of the ocean. I've spent years reporting on discoveries made using the Hubble Space Telescope, exploring the universe. And today, we have someone who's intimately involved with all of those things. It's an exciting moment for me. Indeed, it is. Uh, no, today, everybody. <laughs> no, really. And, and, maybe, and I hope for our listeners, too. No, it's cool. Uh, today, our guest is Dr. Catherine Sullivan. She's a former astronaut who has the rare distinction of being both on the space shuttle when it deployed the Hubble Telescope. She wrote a book about that, and she explored the deepest known spot in the Earth's ocean. She was also the head of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. And some disclosure, everybody, Dr. Sullivan also served for several years on the board of my beloved Planetary Society, and so she and I go back a bit. And joining her today is Jack Dangerman. He is the founder of ESRI the Environmental Systems Research Institute, a name you may recognize if you use a lot of maps in your work. Uh, Dr. Catherine Sullivan and Jack Dangerman, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Kathy? May I call you Jack? Absolutely. Oh, yes, please. Kathy, you used to talk about this all the time. You were um, the first U.S. woman to walk in space. That's right. And you're the first woman to reach the deepest part of the Mariana Trench. I mean, these are 
these are just extraordinary things, my friend. But you started out as an oceanographer, right? I did. Um, actually, one step before that, I thought I was starting out as a linguist because my high flute and lofty career goal boiled down to I got to find a way that somebody buys me airplane tickets so I can get to go explore this earth and its peoples and its places and its cultures and its landscapes. And so I chose my college because we could afford it and they had a really good Russian language program. And I walk in the door and they tell me I have to take three science classes. I thought that was a terrible idea. I had my path sort of scoped out and I threw every argument and tantrum at them I could and I failed completely. And so I was forced to take three science classes. And that, my friends, is the well-planned out way by which I discovered earth sciences and oceanography and embarked on the path that's been the rest of my career. Okay. When you say the two, what were the two classes? This was at UC Santa Cruz, and I took Introduction to Marine Biology, uh, taught for both freshmen that were not going to major in biology and as the intro for real bio majors. And then I took a General Introduction to Oceanography. Same thing. It was offered as a, a fun and not too hard to pass elective for language majors like me that were forced to take something, but also as the intro course for people who plan to go right on into the field. And it, I just ate it all up. When you're at University of California, Santa Cruz, you're on the ocean. I mean, this is like this is, there's something to study there. It's not like, uh, seriously, you're not in the middle of the country or in Manitoba or someplace. You're right on the sea. Well, and that was one of the real attractions about both of those classes, because instead of just being classroom work, you know, both had us out along the shoreline, I think every single weekend, you know, tide pooling and looking at the, the cliffs around Santa Cruz, doing the geology. Uh, and that was, you know, what I had really been dreaming of and longing for was a life that was a really rich mix of adventurous and inquisitive. And suddenly I'm seeing in front of me and these quite young professors, they, you know, 30-something professors, um, that's the kind of life they're living and they're exuberant about it. They're, they're low-key like Corey, you know, just keeping everything close to the vest. They're bursting with excitement and passion <laughs> about the work they do. And they just, you know, they just beam with delight when they share it with us and ooh and ah over critters and the tide pools and rocks and yeah, I compared that to the delightful guy who was my French lit advisor and, and the Russian prof I had met. Perfectly pleasant people, but you know their life was spent in their office and in the library, so it was intellectually stimulating. But these guys were having adventures all the time, and people did buy them airplane tickets to go off to field sites and find out about new parts of the earth. How did you get an airline ticket to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. That's did, what I want to know. Oh, you did that after you flew in space, right? You're an oceanographer that orbited the Earth before you went to the bottom of the sea. Look, the simple way to understand all this, as my irreverent friends say, is she's just a woman with extreme ups and downs. There you go. So, Jack, we have a lot of things. We have a lot of acronyms. We started with NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Then we went to ESRI. And then we've got uh, GIS and we have GPS. And my understanding is ESRI, ESRID, synthesizes or makes sense of all these acronyms. Is that right? Well, at least we uh, involve them in our work. Now, our work is actually to build software systems that abstract geographic stuff. So people often know about financial information systems. They manage money or uh, personnel record keeping. You know, that's all about people. But geographic stuff really is a unique kind of information system. So we abstract plants, buildings, roads, 
virtually everything that we see and hear, everything that Kathy sees from outer space or saw in the oceans, we abstract that and put it into a database, and then you can make maps from it. So when you say maps, you're not talking about just a road map or a map that you might use navigating at sea or a harbor near shore or so on. You're talking about maps of, 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 of everything. Of everything. Exactly right, Bill. I mean, most people are familiar with the great work that was done at Johns Hopkins uh, over the last year looking at COVID. Uh, that map has been looked at over 2 trillion times. And the amazing part about that map is that data is continuously coming in from all over the world into a database. And then as you pan and zoom on this map or this dashboard, you actually see the latest, well, it's a few hours late, but uh, the latest view on what's happening with COVID. And that map opened the world's eyes. It was a data-driven map. And that's kind of the secret of a GIS is that you put in this data about geographic stuff, and then you can make maps. What does GIS stand G-I- for? Yeah, let's decode GIS for us. Okay, that's Geographic Information Systems. It's a database, and then it's surrounded by tools that allow you to map or do analytics of all this geographic stuff. So the podcast like a radio show. Yep. What do we see when you describe this map that uh, has COVID-19 information? What is it a person sees? And where, where do the data come from to make the map? The data are coming from all sorts of reporting agencies around the world, ministries of health, cities, counties, states that are reporting the actual data. And there's there was two real big organizations that did this. One was the World Health Organization that collected the world's information and reported it. But Johns Hopkins took a a more interesting approach. They searched the internet, made the connections, brought the data together, and then published it. And at first, it was like it took them a day or two to do this, but very gradually they became nearly online, maybe an air gap of a few hours separating it. And people, you know, the the darkest red areas um, were the areas that were the highest density of cases, and the lighter areas uh, were less. But it's an example. I mean, uh, it's not just visualization. What's behind the visualization is all this data, the world's data on COVID. Uh, but people do analytics, uh, patterns, you know, these curves that everybody shows in the, in the, uh, on the TV and so forth. It actually is making a forecast of where the disease will spread. The two of you are working on this together. How did that happen? How did you come together? Well, GIS is not just about COVID. It's about everything. And that includes all of the data that's captured at NOAA. It's uh, data captured in all of our federal and state and local agencies. Even the National Geographic Society organizes their exploration about the world in databases, and then they publish maps or publish stories. But behind the maps are analytics. So you might ask the question, why does Starbucks locate its stores at a particular location? It seems to be across the street from the other guys. (laughs) <laughs> yes, well, that's that's the old story. But actually, they take all kinds of map layers, and they overlay them, and they weight them based on different factors, and they pick out the best place to locate. And so does Walmart and Walgreens, and um, Nike does this, uh, Chick-fil-A. Does, hundreds and hundreds of big corporations around the world bring geographic data together to pick the right location. What's your background? Are you a software guy? No, actually, I grew up in a nursery. I was a landscape architect by training, and I got in, interested in computing at, at Harvard, and they had a lab, which was about making maps with a computer. This was back in the 60s, and I just, I just got crazy about that idea because 
you know, everybody flies around in a plane and Kathy did it on a super plane and they look down and they see patterns and they see relationships about the world. And what this technology promised to do is pull that into a database so that you could analyze it and see things that normally you can't see just visually. I can give you a great NOAA example and because this is one of the places where Jack and I I mean, I knew of Esri from way back when because I've been a map freak since I was probably five years old. Uh, but I mean, Jack and I met during my time at NOAA. But think about it. A hurricane is gonna is heading towards the United States. You've got a that typical cone forecast of where it's gonna go. And let's say let's say three or four days before it makes landfall, you can kind of really see where you know, what's the section of the coastline and how far inland is likely uh, to be hit. So that's looking at it in kind of three dimensions, how far up and down the coast, how far inland over how many days. But if you're FEMA or the Red Cross, what you're wondering about is not just where it is across the coastline. You're wondering about, well, how many people live in the area that's likely to be really badly hit? Um, what's the income level? Uh, what's the age of people there? Old, older folks might need more help uh, evacuating in the evacuation zone. With the kind of map Jack's talking about, the, a geographic information system, one layer can be that hurricane track map. You can lay over that the census data for who lives where and what they make. You can lay over that another layer that's, you know, where are the two-lane roads, four-lane roads, highways. Another layer that's sort of where are the really strong school buildings. Maybe I don't try to evacuate everyone to the next door state. Maybe I just tell them to go get to a school. Uh, and, and how high above sea level or how high above the storm surge is which school near these people. All of that you can analyze when you get those layers stacked together. You can then ask that question, where are the most people at risk and what's the best way for me to get them out of harm's way? And this map will help you really probe and understand that. Because the data is encapsulated in such a form that you can manipulate the relationship between these, you know, like geometric overlays, you can actually build relationships and weight these things uh, forever, actually. So the bigger the computer, the more you can do kind of thing? Well, you can actually scale it right down to small computers. To give you a sense, Bill, this, this is a technology that's almost invisible to normal people, but there are over 10 million people doing this almost every day for a living. What kinds of people would make use of these systems? These are categories, broad categories, but it's almost every city, every county, every state. Uh, and then there are dozens of agencies within those categories, like police departments, fire departments, planning departments, you know, the road departments, they manage their roads in these systems and they do analytics to be able to understand where the potholes are. Or right now with this infrastructure bill coming down, people are so interested in where, where do we locate investments, uh, say, on, on road networks. And then, Kathy, from your side, you and Jack started working together through your connection at NOAA. Is that correct? Yeah, that's where we first met personally. You mentioned the the hurricane example. I mean, how else would you be using this kind of mapping stuff at, at NOAA? How does this sort of help you understand the planet? Oh, you know, tons of ways. Uh, one of NOAA's responsibilities is to make all the nautical charts for the United States. And that the depth data, along with you know, where our lighthouses and where our mm -hmm. um, ranges that help captains guide their ship into port, all of that gets layered onto an integrated nautical chart, which used to be paper, but nowadays are entirely electronic. So you can port however much of 
however much of a world map of all the ports and harbors you want, uh, you could port over into an app on your laptop or your iPhone, and you'll find that's what's on the bridge of virtually every major ship uh, steaming around the planet today. Um, port and harbor managers use this stuff a lot. I mean, one of the great examples I heard years ago was the guy who's in charge of the port of Rotterdam, one of the most congested and high-volume cargo ports in the planet. And it's not just to keep track of which ships are where and who's coming in and out of the port, who's berthed where, but as they look at their projections for rising traffic volume, now they want to get a spatial sense again of, well, what can we do to handle that volume at this port? Do you, do you expand piers? Do you lengthen piers? Do you dredge? So all of those dimensions. Uh, you know, and out in the ocean, you know, there's oceanographers have been tooling around the ocean for decades and decades, each ship and each crew making their own measurements. Uh, and they've been uh, collected, many of them, in something called the World Ocean Database. That organization agreed on something on the order of 50 different measurements about the ocean. Salinity, temperature, depth, a few other things, oxygen. oxygen yeah. yeah. So every, wherever you can, measure as many of these 50 parameters as you can. Send your measurements to us. We'll collect them all in a database. Well, Jack and his team, this is one of the projects we worked on uh, together while I was at NOAA. How do you make that visualizable? In the ocean, because unlike surface Earth, you've got this third dimension that's critical oh, to man. understand. So as a kid, you know, yeah. I had the yeah. world book. And yeah. something that just fascinated me, fascinated me, was here's a map of the world with the clear plastic mm-hmm. layers. Exactly. And you'd peel them back. And it just was so cool that under the ocean surface are mountains and valleys and rivers, essentially. And and so here's a question that I, I just never thought to ask is how do you decide which things to show? You know, how do you make that decision? So I'll take a stab at that, and Jack can amend and correct. You know, in in the olden days, the cartographer made that decision, and that was based on sort of an editorial decision about what kind of map are we trying to make, and so what information do we put on it? And if we're going to add some plastic layers for the little kids to peel back and forth. Kids of all ages, I might add. Yeah, I I played with those when I was a whole lot taller than five years old, um, but that so that was an editorial decision. And you know, you received your world book. I got my National Geographic's, and and that was it. Today, uh, all those layers are stored and and available. Hundreds of them, if not thousands, in in Esri's capability to scrape and scavenge and connect to databases. So the decision now is. What am I interested in? What question am I asking? And what layers, what information do I think will help me understand that question? So the World Ocean Database, you know, we think of maps like latitude, longitude, squares, or pixels, but now we need to do a third dimension. So Jack and his team sliced the ocean up into into pixels, but then graphically made each pixel a cylinder. So you could actually look sideways. You you could sort Uh of tilt your map and orthogonal see, to orthogonal. Yeah. You could look down on a dot in the ocean and say, okay, the surface temperature of that area of the ocean is X amount. But then you could tilt the map so that you could see the height of that cylinder and look at all the diff- several different layers of oxygen or temperature down through the ocean. We'd never had the ability to, to look at the ocean that way and really visually take in uh, this kind of structure. I mean, in a in a quantitative data sense, which is the difference, Bill, between the plastic layers in your world uh, atlas and now, I'm not just seeing 
sort of where a color that shows me where the Gulf Stream is, I can see what the temperature in that Gulf Stream filament is. So this is cool. So if you can see the ocean in three dimensions, I'm just guessing if you're studying fisheries, if you're studying ocean currents or ocean pollution, there are all these different reasons you might want to do that. What can we do now that we couldn't do before? You know, who's benefiting from this? Yeah, scientists continue to benefit from it because when you radically change, we all know this from our own life, a radical change in how I take in some data can be transformative to my understanding of the data. I, you know, you, you read a book and then you saw a movie. Those are two different ways of engaging that content. And these interactive multidimensional maps are, you may have looked at the Excel spreadsheet that contained all these data, but you didn't oh, comprehend yeah. it in the same <laughs> way. I'll say. Uh, it's, <laughs> so it's that kind of a transformative difference. Stick around for more science rules after this. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. Science Rules is back. What is it you want to address next? Is it is it a form of climate change? Is it some human population migrate? What is it? What is next for you? There are two things on my radar screen. Uh, one is what are the leverage points to focus on in the natural environment that could make uh, our planet and our ability to live on this planet more resilient, uh, more resilient against shocks and strains, which would also mean you know, more sustainable with greater longevity. Uh, and then where are the likely trigger points? You know, where are there confluences? Where are there intersections of maybe a food stress, water stress that might well destabilize a nation state or destabilize a swarm of people who suddenly have no option but to flee? And I would argue we're seeing uh, a version of this story at our southern border now, because many of the Central Americans teeming north towards the United States uh, live in a portion of Honduras that was not well-to-do and not built with um, heavy-duty infrastructure to start with, and was slammed with back-to-back really devastating hurricanes. Houses destroyed, crops destroyed, you know, reservoirs, freshwater resources flooded over with salt water and, and filled with mud. The ability to live where you were was effectively just erased by Mother Nature, and you're seeking somewhere else to survive and hopefully let your children thrive. Where are other points like that that could be triggers for big migrations? I mean, the root of what I do is geography, the science of our world. 
geography is kind of in a way the mother of all sciences because it brings all the various ologies together, geology, climatology, you know, demographics. It's all unified. And maps are the language of geography. They're uh, interesting because, I mean, we've got written word, we've got music, we have mathematics, but cartography is a kind of visual language. And we use maps to be able to get insights or create understanding of geography, whether it's, again, cultural geography or physical geography. And we know the world is all interrelated. You push a button here and this happens way over here. Well, this is a framework and a process for a for us to be able to understand things. And that understanding precedes action. So my work is really about building understanding. And that's a foundation for action, whether it's addressing climate change or whether it's locating a new store or whether it's locating a new school or responding to diseases. It's all about first creating understanding out of all of these data sets and then creating visualizations that talk to people. So there's decisions that are made by the cartographer. As a kid, well, anybody looks at the Mercator projection. Uh, the, the guy mathematically wrapped a cylinder around a ball. And so Greenland and these exotic places become distorted visually. But the thing is, if you are a navigator, a mariner, you can get true bearings. You can lay a ruler on that map and drive your ship in the right direction and you'll end up where you're going to go. How many decisions do you all make about how to present information? Because although it's useful to a mariner with a ruler and a compass who wants to go from Sydney to Los Angeles, that's one thing. But it gives you this weird view of the world that is largely distorted. Greenland is big, but it ain't that big. So how it's many? Not as, de- it's not bigger than Africa. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So how many decisions like that do you guys? take responsibility for Well, our users, and these are these millions of people, they basically, I would say they're running the world. Okay, it's a bit of an assertion, but they're building the maps of understanding that communicate and support uh, millions of decisions. You know, finding and preserving biodiversity areas like Nature Conservancy is doing is all about analyzing the data and then creating the maps to be able to figure out what the hotspots for conservation should be. E.L. Wilson and the work that's going on with his foundation up at Yale doing the same thing. They're analyzing the data. What's emerging is a new age of exploration. I really like to call it digital exploration of our world. And kids, that's pretty good. Digital yeah, and exploration. Kids love yeah. this. I mean, you can't imagine. And uh, we're working with literally thousands of schools and kids are discovering relationships in their own neighborhoods. And some of them are bad relationships, you know, about uh, drugs on on streets, about powder cocaine, or about incarceration, or an unfair, uh, you know, policing going on. And they're discovering it. Or I'm, you know, you live in Southern California. I live in Southern California. In East LA, in Roosevelt High School, these kids did one of the GIS projects, and they found out that their school gets about one-third the funding as the kids over in Beverly Hills. And they said, this little girl got up, I remember her distinction, she's got to uphold this map. She, this is just not fair. And this is a 15-year-old, you know, and I'm seeing, yeah. wow, this, well, this, dog this, girl right. is, this girl is going to be, you know, a stronger citizen because she's understanding and exploring geographic data and visualizing and telling stories and getting active about that. Hey, so, Kathy, what, what, what vessel did you take? To the bottom of the sea. I was, as a kid, just utterly fascinated with the Trieste, which is this thing. They filled this zebra-striped submarine with kerosene 
because it just barely float. And then these two naval officers went to the bottom of the ocean, and it was so the the, the uh, propeller stirred up so much mud, nobody really saw much. Yeah, it wasn't the propeller; it was the just their landing on the bottom. That was just, uh, just U.S. Navy Lieutenant, down. yeah, U.S. Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh, and a Swiss engineer Jacques Picard, who was really the the father of the bathyscaphe Trieste. Um, Picard, coincidence? Picard, yes. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah, prop, yeah, I think Roddenberry knew something about that. But uh, I was invited uh, on an expedition by Victor Vescovo. Victor's a Dallas-based equity investor, uh, done very well. Uh, and he's also quite an adventurer. So he had already summited the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. And he had skied across both the North and South Pole. So those nine feats together are called the Explorer's Grand Slam. And while he was in the midst of doing that on one of the seven summits, he uh, he's a really bright polymath guy. And he started wondering, well, this doesn't seem quite right. There's this big thing about reaching the seven highest points on Earth. But, you know, we have oceans. How come there's no big thing about reaching the deepest point in each of the five major oceans? And instead of just wondering over that and letting it go, he started researching it. And he discovered there were two big reasons. One was, well, no one actually had any kind of vessel that could take human beings there. Uh, there was well, no I say such... all the time, exploring the surface of the moon is easier Much than easier. the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. You just get a telescope just. You get a pair of binoculars right. and you're careful. You can look a lot, uh, uh, see the moon very clearly. But the ocean yeah. has the three C's. It's cold, crushing, and corrosive. Well, and light does not transmit through it, so you're hmm. not going to be able to see long distances through it. So uh, so that was number one. There's actually current, no way to get there right now. But another interesting one was uh, known quite well where the Marianas Trench is uh, and pretty certainly where the deepest point within that trench is. But in the four other trenches, the, the um, Aleutian Trench, uh, the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic, the Southern Ocean— you kind of knew the deepest point would be in one of the deep trenches in each of those oceans, but they're like you know thousands of miles long and you didn't know where. So Victor proceeded to commission the building of a submersible that could take you there and could go super deep multiple times and a ship to carry it around and equipped the ship with uh, high resolution multi-beam sonars so that you could confirm where these deepest points are. So these were the first these were the first times these things had been mapped. They've been mapped, but not at fine enough scale to be positive about where the, the absolute deepest wow. point is. Wow. Yeah. You, yeah. Just, you just don't <laughs> expect that. I mean, we go, we right. send spacecraft to Mars. Oh, yeah. We know where the highest point is. We know where the deepest point is Bill, to with Bill, like extraordinary best, accuracy. The, the best knowledge of the depth of the Marianas Trench before Victor uh, started his work was plus or minus 75 meters, plus or minus 150 feet. That was one data point in an area that was probably, you know, half a kilometer. So pretty crummy. So by the time that you went down, did you know what you were getting into? Was that was it well mapped by that point? You knew what you were plunging into as you went down? So the Challenger Deep is probably the best studied portion of any of those super deep areas. It's it is Where does that is, name come from? What? I, I grew up calling it the Marianas Trench. When did people well, call so it the, the Mar Trench? The Marianas Trench is a big, long, 1,500-mile-long arc that runs along the east side of the Marianas Islands. This is where the Pacific Plate is plunging underneath uh, the Asian Plate. And it continues south and a little west of Guam. 
that that's where the deepest point is. It's called the Challenger Deep because Her Majesty's ship Challenger made the first measurements of this super deep place uh, in, the, in the way back when. Uh, oh, using a log line, like using a weight on a line, a yep. line on a, a weight on, on a line, eleven line. Yeah. Yep. So Gee whiz! So somebody's cranking it like wow, eleven kilometers. Yeah. Like, dude. First, ex- first explorations of these parts of the deep trenches were done by Challenger back when. All right. So, so and so, I have to ask, what was it like? Yeah, what's <laughs> it like? Do your ears pop? Like, what's what goes on when you do that? Yeah, yeah they better not pop. <laughs> so you're sealed inside a five-foot diameter titanium ball. Uh, Victor's submersible, is, it's cozy. It's, it's not cramped. It's got seats. So think think 12 hours in a regional jet uh, with a seat that doesn't recline, but enough room to you know move around and stretch a bit. Four hours down and four hours back up with this submersible. And, and the, goal, the goal was to spend four hours on the bottom. Uh, and what we were doing was was mapping transects to try to nail down more precisely what is the actual depth here. And Victor's measurements from the submersible and the surface ship got it down to plus or minus six meters instead of 75. Um, uh, factor but, 10, yeah. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, on my dive, we, we had an electrical system problem that cut us short at about an hour and a half on the bottom, and then we Gee headed back up. Whiz. So it's an, it's an elevator ride. It's a serene elevator ride. Hmm. All right, so here we go. You're going up and down in the ocean. Jack, you're looking at maps. What, how do you guys, how does this cross paths? How did you, how does deep, deep ocean exploration and maps, which I understand started out on this, how did you end up working together? Well, actually on this adventure that she took, she asked if I'd come along and map it. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> did my, you go? No, did I didn't you go. I, I get seasick, so I told her, no, I was working on COVID. But anyway, what's the purpose of these kinds of explorations? That's always uh, an interesting question. It is to not just experience the exploration of doing something no one else has done, but also to measure it. And when we're talking about measurement, why are we doing measuring? Why are we measuring Mars? Why are we measuring the moon? Why are we measuring the bottom of the oceans? Well, there's either there's this, the quest for science, better understanding, but also there's the quest for how do we apply that knowledge in practical ways. Science Rules will be right back. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. You're listening to Science Rules. What is the climate resilience tool? These are tools that people are working on on top of maps. Things like hurricanes can be related to land use patterns and where people live. If we look to the future and accelerate out 50 years or 100 years, we know that there's going to be consequences of this of the global warming. And some of those will be sea level rise. And the ability to overlay the sea level rise on top of Mm-hmm. Those land use, we can now predict uh, where where it's going to be most impactful. We can also show geographically 
by bringing different climate models together, the areas that are going to get hotter, places around the equator, for example, are going to become really hot and in some cases not livable. And then you can lay in what's known about the survival temperature range of different tree species or grass species or flower species and begin to see you know, this one that grows here now, if the temperature becomes that range, won't be able to live here anymore, now could thrive further north. Uh, but gee, let's remember, it's also dependent on a certain kind of soil. And that kind of soil doesn't exist further north. That one's probably just going to disappear. The other example in all this is farming or agriculture. Yes. If you move the breadbasket of the U.S. north into what is now Canada and so on, the sunlight pattern is different. So the species of crops that we all rely on right now may not be able to feed 9 billion or even more than that billion people. And the soils thin out against the ancient Precambrian rocks, so there's less soil capacity. Yep. So geographic science is the body of knowledge that allows us to be able to analyze these and make these predictions and see the future. How much of, do you guys use virtual reality goggles kind of thing? Occasionally, you can connect virtual reality goggles into a GIS now with gaming engine visualization. And that's interesting. I mean, for kids, it means linking science to, uh, you know, playing games. Yeah, so most games are built on artificial realities. But uh, what we're working on now is to connect all those game engines right into real geography. Uh, so kids will start to play games. They'll see the world in new ways. Uh, and they'll be able to mix this information in such a way that they can themselves play things like SimCity, but for real, uh, on real geographies. Well, that's what uh, city planners do professionally with your products, right? Yes, exactly. All over the world. The Climate Resilience Toolkit. I mean, who is that aimed at? Is that something that, you know, that ordinary citizens and community groups could access to kind of help them get involved to help communicate yes. these these risks and, they, and the urgency? And they do. I mean, NOAA, NOAA folks use that in communities where they're working with city managers, with land use managers, with uh, state regulators. Because we got to get ev- we got to get everybody involved. We yeah. got to get them past this sort of abstract thing of one point five degrees centigrade. Yeah. What even is that? Well, and that was the point I was going to jump on to Bill's question about virtual reality. I think the the ability to immerse really richly immerse in these data is hugely powerful. But the power of coupling VR type visualization to GIS, I think, will only it, it'll be it'll be underused, it'll be misused if that just becomes individual solo experiences. I can look around Paris or I can look around wherever. The power of these things is when you bring different groups together, you bring the businessman together, you bring the farmer together, you bring the mayor together, you bring the environmental activists together about a place. And you let you let the maps and the data and the ability to flip things in and out to add and subtract and look at different layers let let them explore that together and as, then, a, com- as a community so you're as really, a community you're connecting then, the community to the information right. systems and then propagate that into the future and let this be a platform for all of them to have a conversation about what becomes of our community when and and what can we do? We want to do something about that to be more resilient, to adapt to it more readily. One of my colleagues, Brand Farron, maybe you know him. I know I know Brand well because he was an Imagineer. Yeah. I, I worked with him at Disney. He, he invented the touch table years ago, and all of this sort of interactive table uh, 
magic. And he would scale this out to where like a whole floor of, uh, this was military applications, but a whole floor was a map. You'd walk on the map, you know, with little booties and you could walk and say, okay, this is here, this is there. And then he could bring these overlays that we're talking about magically on the display screen as you were walking around. He used it as uh, this concept of, of briefing. Uh, and, and so I think, I think uh, it's infinite. Digital makes it infinite. Infinite. Another great example that I encountered some years ago was uh, in, in Arizona in a center that was called Decision Center for Desert City, DCDC. And this was several large screens on a wall. And the idea was you could bring in, again, the, the elected officials, citizens, transit planners, water managers into this room and see you know, here's our city now, and, and Bill wants to build 200 more houses up here. Uh, what's what's that land? What are their tribal claims on that land? How much water is there? Uh, is the ground suitable for laying in infrastructure? Uh, what's that extra burden on the city water supply of 200 more people going to be? How close to the edge are we as a city of, you know, there's only so much water in this desert yeah. basin, and if you build keep building houses, keep building impervious uh, surfaces that let the water run off. Where are we headed, folks? And what can we do and what should we not do? Shared conversation over shared information sets and the ability of anybody to say, take that one out, or I think that's more important, give that one bigger weight, uh, and just learn together and decide a course of action together. When you're mapping the ocean, when you're getting higher and higher resolution, is anybody going to find... Uh, Flight 370, the Malaysia airliner that is in this really extraordinarily deep and difficult to explore part of the ocean. You know, if you if you just had enough time and patience uh, and a deep-toed side scan, it should be. But you know, even a side scan sonar, you get it deep enough to have the kind of resolution you need on that very deep bottom. It doesn't have a ginormous swath. Again, this is not Mars. This is water. And, and energy goes through water differently than it goes through vacuum or air. So, you you know, it would take, we always call this mowing the lawn. It would take a lot of oh. very narrow pathways mowing the lawn. But all that presumes that you've done your forensics well enough that you've maybe isolated down to a thousand um, by a thousand miles uh, or something. A re- reasonable I, size, yeah. Yeah. All we need is high precision neutrino mapping of the world. It's uh, it's you know it's an attainable what? technology. What? Let's go, people. <laughs> A so, little bit uh, of unobtainium, and we're all set. <laughs> Kathy, if you were queen of the forest, what would you change about maps or the way we use maps? And Jack, the same to you. When we get to it, I would make maps much more the cornerstone of education from the earliest age not as devices to, to show you where the list of names you have to be able to repeat on the test are, but as story platforms. So um, when do you want to start this, kindergarten? You can start earlier than that. You, you, you started earlier than that. You said you were obsessed with maps by the age of five. Yeah, and now it's, you know, you have to let the passion and interest be appropriate to the age. So at, you know, at age five, I was not reading labels and, and doing advanced analytics, but the shapes and the colors fascinated me. And it was little baby steps of learning. Like that squiggly line is so squiggly because the border between this country and that country is a river. And so hmm. that that funny line between the pink country and the green country is showing you where a river is. And here's a picture of the river. 
it was that kind of simple building block. But if you feed that fascination and you just let it grow naturally, as Jack's been saying, spatial relationship to our world around us is strong intrinsic capability of every human being. If you switch too quickly to, now build you remember the name of that mountain? Uh, You you can squash uh, it out of any kid in a heartbeat. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And now Jack, Jack, you're running the world. What are, we, what are you? What are you adding? What are you changing? What are you doing? I think at an early age, uh, Kathy is actually right. Spatial thinking is essential, and we grow up with it as human beings. Uh, a study by National Geographic, Gil Grosvenor and I funded it actually many years ago, showed that about the year seven or eight years old, spatial cognition starts to kick in, and. Uh, it's really about that age where we were able to really bring GIS into schools and get kids to get motivated and actually apply it and start spatial thinking. That's the age I drew my first map. It was how did, what is the route you take to school? And I worked with my father to transform it from just simply, you know, I, I walk this way and then I veer a little that way to actually understanding how it related to the actual streets. So getting kids to actually be spatial thinkers means not just orientation or orienting, it also means finding relationships between things. And this is what's oh, missing. This is what's missing in, in the world society is they don't relate this to that. And science in so many ways, you know, disciplines us to study only geology or only biology or only this or only that. So the integrative nature of geography to bring the different ologies together, as I think, needs to be taught at an early age. And oh, let's get that done. Kids, yes, that's, I'm working on that hard. I mean, that's really the big thing. Corey, Corey, Corey. Wait, Corey. Oh, wait, Bill. I, I hear something. There, there's a, a, a distant, distinctive rumbling that tells me, ah, that's the sound of lightning. Lightning, right. Corey. Jack and Kathy. Jack and Kathy. Be aware that uh, we're about to enter the lightning round. All right. So while we're there, Kathy, what's your favorite map of all time? The one I made of the Newfoundland Basin, which is the deep sea off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, that I, I charted for the first time, and I got to name the seamounts that stick up out of the seafloor there. Are they named Kathy? They, they are not named after me. <laughs> so, Jack, your favorite map? Uh, a map up in Alaska, which showed certain areas were better for fishing than other areas. Wow. Uh, what's the worst map you've ever encountered? Every map that never appears in media coverage about a story where it would be really helpful and much more informative. The missing maps. The missing missing map in almost every magazine and newspaper article. Let's call it geojournalism. I mean, that's a whole new field uh, of journalism that needs to have a map associated with it or it's telling a story about a geography. But not just any map. I mean, it's not, you know, what there's a story about something in Los Angeles. I'm not talking about a single outline map that shows the U.S. and California and a dot for Los Angeles. The map that gives me some more context about the story that you're writing, not just shows me the freckle of where it is in North Dog America. Doggone it. All right. What's the most important thing that has not been mapped? Biology of the ocean writ large. The, the problem with mapping the ocean is that it's moving constantly. That's the key to Changes it. Changes right? in temperature, currents. The fish are moving, the biology of the ocean is moving. So it's, it's a tall question that you're asking to be answered. What's the most misunderstood thing about your institute? 
Nobody knows it exists, actually. <laughs> there you go. Well, they should listen to this it's podcast kind of this and turn it up loud. It's, a, it's an invisible company that supports all these organizations around the world. And what people don't really realize is the power of what it's doing. And we're just a little, we, do, we help all these other people do the real work. We're just tool builders. But it's an important tool. All right, I'd be remiss. I'd be remiss. Kathy, what's more, what's cooler? What's more thrilling? What's more exciting? Flying I, in space. I'm, I'm forcing Bill to ask this question. Well, it's a good one. <laughs> uh, what's more exciting, flying in space or exploring the ocean deep? Uh, from you know sheer adrenaline, riding a bomb to get off the planet, it kind of tops the list, and the view, <laughs> and the view is superb from orbit. But uh, just the the marvel and mystery of life in the ocean is absolutely dazzling, and there's no equivalent on the space frontier. There you go. Uh, is it true that plankton affect currents? They do affect currents. Uh, and of course, phytoplankton produce basically every other breath any of us take. Little microscopic things that are awfully important, even to you and me. It's cool. Well, you guys, thank you both so much. And thank you especially for taking the time. Thanks for telling us about your geojournalistic exploration and the information you provide to the world, which I hope uh, I understand is you all are planning to change the world. Our guests today have been Dr. Catherine Sullivan, former astronaut and lifetime explorer, and Jack Dangermund, founder of ESRI, formerly known as the Environmental Systems Research Institute. Remember, from the bottom of the ocean to the top of the atmosphere and beyond, science, science rules. Now, if you like Science Rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. My pleasure. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Hallford composed our original theme. Josephine Margaret is our executive producer. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science, Science Rules. Stitcher. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.